My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Back with us today is James Galliano, a former Airborne Infantry Officer with the Army Rangers who spent 25 years with the FBI as an undercover agent investigating organized crime. James was also a member of the FBI's hostage rescue team, the Bureau's elite counterterror unit, where he was deployed to Afghanistan three times in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. James was also the senior team leader for the FBI's New York Field Division SWAT team. Jim, I got to tell you, it's, it's an honor to have you back on the show. Welcome. Well, Lawrence, I got to say, um, I don't do redos on, on podcasts. You're the one podcast that I'm coming back <laughs> for a second stint. I, I, I really enjoyed our last conversation, and I know you want to get into some really interesting stuff tonight. So I appreciate you having me back. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm, uh, you know, I'm super excited to have you back, Jimmy, because I got to tell you, you know, we, we covered on a, a lot in our last podcast about your history in the FBI with organized crime. And we, we also touched on SWAT a little bit, but more from, you know, the, the ethos of SWAT and more from the, his, the you know, historical perspective. But what I really wanted to delve into with you last time, and we just, we just ran out of time, we were talking for, you know, for a while, was leadership. And the, the fact that you headed up the FBI's New York SWAT team, you know, I really wanted to delve into that. So that's why, you know, we've got you back on the show to really sink our teeth into your perspective on leadership. Uh, I know that you've done a lot of coaching and training of major uh, Fortune 500 corporations uh, on leadership. You've written some great articles about leadership, what, what good leadership looks like, what bad leadership looks like. So, you know, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to getting into this, but let's kind of Let's kind of ease into it by talking about uh, your time with the New York SWAT team. So you, you became senior team leader for the FBI's New York SWAT team. And, you know, I guess what led you to join SWAT? Because what drove, you know, what drove you to sign up with the Bureau was your desire to go undercover and work organized crime. And, and go after La Cosa Nostra and the New York's uh, five families, right? The infamous five families. How did that lead you to joining SWAT? I mean, what, you know, what, what was the driver there and, and what was your role initially? Well, Lawrence, I, I think that's a great question. And I, and I think, I, I think the, the, the easy answer, the, the, the one word, the two word answer would be natural progression. Um, I, I'd spent time in the US military I loved being part of a team. I mean, whether it was being on a team in high school or being on a team at the United States Military Academy or being on a team in the United States Army, I loved being on a team. And obviously I was, I was drawn to tactical resolution. And really, if it's from the military perspective or from the law enforcement perspective, yes, of course there are distinctions. I mean, you know, soldiers have a different mission per se than say law enforcement officers do domestically. I, I mm -hmm. get that, but tactical resolution is, is somewhat similar in that you are going to find people that are going to come together as a cohesive unit. You're going to give them a mission that they have to accomplish. 
one of the prerequisites for these people, these men and women that do that type of job is they have to be, they have to be able to accept a little more risk than the average person. Now we're not talking about thrill seekers. I'm not talking about somebody that just gets off on being a base jumper or on, you know, riding a wave that's, you know, three stories high. Not, not that we're looking for people that, that, have the ability. And I talk about it all the time. When I, when I, when I speak to those companies and those fortune 500 companies you're talking about in trying to show them the difference between in extremist leadership, meaning leadership at the point of death and how you can apply those principles into a non in extremist situation. And I always talk about it from this perspective. It is, it is finding those people that have a certain comfortability around fear and I say all the time with, with the guys that used to try out for the New York SWAT team or if the hostage rescue team with the FBI, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the mastery of it. It mm. means you're scared shitless, but you're able to control your emotions. You're able to control the physiological changes that happen in your body when you're scared and you're still able to focus and, and accomplish the mission. And that really, if you can lead in those kind of circumstances, Dealing with, hey, the bottom line every month in a boardroom and making sure that we're selling enough widgets so that we stay in the black and we're not in the red. Yes, th- that is stress. But if you can do it at the extremist level when it's at the point of the, 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 the pointy part of the spear, the tip of the spear, mm-hmm. it makes it easier to do it in a normal sense. Okay. So uh, you, you clearly had the ability to you know, work effectively and operate uh, in an effective manner in extremist scenarios. So, you know, and you say natural progression to the uninitiated, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like going undercover, infiltrating the mob and then joining the SWAT team, which is a direct action unit. They don't seem congruent. Right. But I know you, you know, look, you were in the, you, you were an officer in the army Rangers, right. Uh, so clearly you had the, you know, the, the, you know, the tactical, uh, experience, you had the mindset to do that kind of work. And, uh, you know, I guess when, when you ended up joining SWAT, you know, what, so what's the role like initially, because, you know, you've gone from going, another thing is SWAT a full-time job or is it, is is it, is it part-time? How does that work? Sure. A couple things here. First of all, let me just clarify something. I was a ranger qualified infantry officer, but I wasn't in a ranger battalion. I mean, there okay. those are those are separate. But I mean, I went through ranger school class four dash eighty eight. I I earned a ranger tab, but but there is a distinction. I was not okay. in a ranger battalion. I was in the gotcha. 10th Mountain Division where back in the 80s, the idea for the 10th Mountain Division was all the officers and non-commissioned officers. They wanted to make them ranger qualified because, again, you know, ranger school is a crucible, right? It's a 61 day test of being hungry and tired and cold and wet and making decisions, you know, when again, you're starving and you're soaking wet and you're cold and you haven't slept in three days. And, you know, one of the famous things that I've heard from a number of people that, that served in Vietnam or served in the first Gulf war or served in Afghanistan or Iraq. And they all say the same thing. Getting through ranger school is supposed to prepare you for combat, but as harrowing as combat is, it doesn't suck 
like Ranger School does. Ranger School, is, <laughs> Ranger School is about making you feel uncomfortable, getting you out of your comfort zone and still have you have the ability to be able to make decisions and lead. So, you know, you, you talk about the incongruity with my, with, with, with my career. I just wanted, there was so much available and so many opportunities for, for, for leadership roles in the military and in law enforcement. I really didn't want to be stuck into one lane. And, and while I respect people that were in one lane because they become subject matter experts on white collar crime or tactical resolution or undercover work, I wanted to do them all so that I could step back as a leader when I started moving up in the ranks in the FBI and I could say, I know what it's like to send people undercover into a situation where it's them against, you know, the bad guys and they've just got their wits about them, no guns, no nothing. And they got to be able to stay safe, get what we need for the case and get out of there alive and have the same perspective on SWAT and understand what it's like to be in a paramilitary unit. And your question about, is it full-time? Is it part-time? The only full-time team the FBI has is the elite hostage rescue team. That is the full-time, they're stationed down at Quantico. It is the, somebody else said this, and I can't remember who, because I'd love to give them an attribution, but it is the equivalent in the counterterrorism world of being a professional athlete. Right. You have the best of everything, the gear, the equipment, the training, the ability to work your body, to make it, to chisel it and put, it, put yourself in the best physical condition, the best gear, the best tactical training, and you get the best missions. There's only one HRT and there's only 52 guys on that team. HRT can't be everywhere at one time. So all 56 field divisions in the FBI, they're scattered around the country in every, you know, almost every state, um, but there's 56 total field divisions each one has a SWAT team. It could be as small as a six-man team or as large as the New York team that I had that was a 45-man team. So right. that is a part-time job. And, and, and I don't mean to, that's an unfair statement to say because those guys eat, breathe, and sleep it. And those women too, because there are women on FBI SWAT teams. But they are doing it as an ancillary duty. Their number one job is to be an FBI agent, is to make federal cases, and see that they're prosecuted and see that the bad guys go to jail. But when the, when the bell goes off and the, and the horn sounds, they respond and the team goes and does a mission. So it is an ancillary duty. So it's part-time, but we don't like to use that term. We consider it to be an ancillary duty. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. And, uh, you know, pardon, pardon my phraseology, you know, I'm trying to think about understanding. I always, I always thought that SWAT, was, you know, if you were in SWAT, you know, that that's it. But then, you know, it, it, you know, thinking about it now, you know, obviously you guys got to train, but for the most part, unless there's an emergency taking place where SWAT is called in, you know, you're, you know, then you're not doing it. It happens in rare instances. And I'll give you a quick example. The FBI has 12,000 FBI agents scattered around the world. Okay. The, the NYPD, the New York City Police Department, has 36,000 cops in New York City. So they have the ability to have a separate unit, which is called the Emergency Services Unit, ESU. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the New York State Police have one. A, a lot of big departments. LAPD has one. But those guys are full-time in a department that large 
where they had that specific mission. In the FBI, you can't. You got to be an agent first. Right. And then your ancillary duty is to be a SWAT team member unless you're a member of HRT. And then that's a full-time gig. Which you were. Yes. Okay. So were you, were you with the hostage rescue team, with the counter-terror team first, and then you were with no. SWAT first? So, so again, and I think, I think the theme tonight, Lawrence, is going to be natural progression. So the natural progression was, you know, I came out of the Army. I was a first lieutenant promotable in a, in a high-speed infantry battalion in the 10th Mountain Division up at Fort Drum. Mm -hmm. um, a ranger qualified, wanted to do things, and I got into the FBI. The closest I could get to the tactical world was be an agent. I was working organized crime at the time in the early 90s, but I tried out for the New York office Brooklyn Queens SWAT team. So okay. at that time, there were three 15-man teams in New York, one that covered Manhattan and the Bronx, another that covered Brooklyn and Queens, and one that, that handled upstate New York and Long Island. So I was on the Brooklyn Queens team. So I tried out for that team. I was on that team again as an ancillary duty Okay. For seven years before I tried out for the hostage rescue team and got selected for HRT, went to HRT for four years, came back to the field, back to the New York office in 2001, just in time for 9-11. And a year or two later, I think about two years later, I was appointed the SWAT team leader for the New York office. So I was a junior SWAT guy. Then I made the hostage rescue team, came back to New York and then took over the New York SWAT team. Got you. So, you know, it, that's interesting. And the way you've described uh, HRT, um, they're like the, the Navy SEALs of the FBI. No doubt. So the, the way it's spoken about in the business, it's called, it's tiered. Tier one assets are the Army's Delta Force, which, you know, they don't even call themselves Delta Force because <laughs> it's just operational detachment Delta or whatever. Right. There's Delta Force. There's SEAL Team 6. There's the Army Ranger Battalions. There's Marine Force Recon. There is, um, you know, Task Force 160, which are all the aviation units that were put together after uh, Desert One failed in, in, in yes. 1979, 1980, trying to rescue the Iranian hostages. So um, HRT came online in 1983 in anticipation of the 84 LA Olympics and the fact that at the time, President Reagan was speaking to the FBI director, who at the time was Judge William Webster, and says, hey, what's our plan if something like Munich in 1972 at the Olympics, if that happens? And in that instance, Palestinian terrorists took a bunch of uh, Israeli athletes hostage and killed a bunch of them. What is our plan? And they're like, well, sir, we really can't use military assets. Um, it, it has to be law enforcement due to posse comitatus. And that was the impetus to standing up HRT. So what happened was they had a tryout across the FBI. A lot of the SWAT team sent guys in. They picked an initial 52 guys. And okay. then they sent them down to North Carolina to train with Delta and to train with the SEALs and to train with British SAS, wow. German GSG-9, all the top tier one counter-terror assets around the world. And in 1984, right before the Olympics, they got their sign off from the community that, yes, this asset, this unit, the hostage rescue team is signed off and is ready to become part of our community. And so 
We've been in the tier one asset community since 1984. You know, it's really interesting how you, you know, you, you were in the military. Um, you didn't, you know, you didn't get to see at that time action. I think you left before uh, the Gulf War started. I'm a cold warrior. Right. And yet you end up getting yeah. deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah. When you're with the FBI. It's just, you know, incredible uh, how things work out. But clearly you were destined to be in the heat, you know, in the heat of it, in the heat of battle. Um, and when you were with the New York SWAT team, um, you and your colleagues were awarded the FBI's Medal for Bravery for your role in the 1993 apprehension of terrorists that were planning to bomb the Holland Tunnel uh, and other New York City landmarks. And, and you didn't just arrest them by scooping them up in their homes, right? You, you raided their bomb factory. Yeah. And that was years before 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that situation, that case? Well, sure. First of all, I got I to gotta add the caveat that I was a very junior member of the SWAT team back at that time. I couldn't spell SWAT if you spotted me, the <laughs> S and the W and the A. But um, <laughs> I was very privileged to be around some very senior guys in the, in the New York office real heroes. I mean, real guys that I cut my teeth under. And, you know, and, and I say this, was that a, was that a dangerous mission where we literally, you know, busted in on them as they're, they're literally stirring, you know, the, 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 the witch's brew, as it was called to blow up a number of, of, of landmark and historic places in New York city, bridges and tunnels and, and, you know, icon, you know, the FBI building, federal building. Yes, it was. It's a dangerous mission. But I think most people that get awards pinned on them and don't feel like they deserve them. There were mm -hmm. plenty of other times in even more harrowing situation where nobody hears about it. But in that instance, we all felt a little uncomfortable that, you know, the FBI director decided at that time that our team was going to get awarded the second gotcha. highest medal for for which is called the Medal of Bravery for the FBI. But I, I say this. It's the same thing in the military, you know. A lot of times there are people in, in, in our U.S. military, in our armed forces, that deserve the damn Medal of Honor, the highest award for valor you can get. But nobody in their unit lived to tell the tale. And I say it about people that get medals pinned on them. Not all of them, but I certainly put myself in there and say, you know, I was in the right place at the right time and they recognized it, but trust me there's other people that have done far more mm. dangerous things and you know we, we were recognized for that but there are a lot of folks in the fbi that did equally or more dangerous things and didn't get recognized but yes that was the 93 the precursor if you will to obviously what happened on 9 11 because right you, you had the bombing of the, the world trade center the original one in february of 93 we make the arrest on the bomb factory and then seven years later Osama bin Laden is successful in actually bringing down both the towers and destroying part of the Pentagon and crashing a plane in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But yes, this was this was one of those plots that we were able to disrupt and dismantle. And the FBI and law enforcement writ, writ large does a lot of these all the time. And many of them do not make the news. But Lawrence, you know, the old saying for bad guys, they got to get it right one time. The good guys, we got to get it right every single time. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And, um, you know, I, I understand what you're saying with respect to metals and, and this kind of thing, but I, you know, I wanted to bring that up because 
number one, you talk about progression and, you know, it's an, that's an interesting uh, historical note with respect to your progression, where you were when you first joined the SWAT team, you were in potentially, if you want to call it the right place at the right time, but that kind of shows, you know, where you were when you were first on the SWAT team. And then, you know, what ends up happening? Well, I, you know, I hear about from an old friend of yours uh, who was on the show recently, Navy SEAL Commander uh, Errol Dobler, who was an a he was also an FBI agent, and he was a member of the uh, New York uh, Field Division SWAT team. He was one of your guys, yeah. and and you know what he told me? He said that he said you were already the leader of the SWAT team when he got there. But he said that everyone told him that before Jimmy Galliano got there, the New York SWAT team was in bad shape. And he said that you turned the SWAT team around and that under you, it became the top unit in the country, if not the world. So, I mean, th you know, those are, you know, th those are powerful accolades coming from someone who, you know, has, has you know, been there and done that Navy SEALs, you know, also FBI on the SWAT team investigating, uh, you know, uh, terrorists globally. He's saying that about you. Tell us what things were like when you got there and what you did as a leader to turn it around. Well, first of all, let me just, let me fix a few things there. So okay. um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say this. First of all, Errol, Errol Dobler, um, is one of the single most humble and talented guys I've ever had the privilege of working with. Now, I'll never forgive him for the fact that he went to the United States Naval Academy. I thought that was a poor career choice and that he made a huge mistake. But all kidding, all kidding aside, um, uh, just, a, just an outstanding talent and, and, and a very, a very humble. People in my business aren't typically without ego. Um, it, it's, it's hard to be in that kind of business, in this kind of business, without having confidence and self-assuredness. And I don't mean arrogance, but, but, right. but it's ego. It is, you know, right. that I can do this. I can make this happen. Um, Errol was one of those guys that came in and again, uh, into the FBI after having a stellar career as a, as a lieutenant in the Navy SEALs, um, Annapolis grad, um, real humble guy. And yes, he does, he does kind of sketch out the way that things were. And, and you know, it's funny, Lawrence, I'm, I'm an elected trustee in the tiny village of Cornwall and Hudson. And it's a mm -hmm. small village of 3,000 people in upstate New York. And, and I'm very proud of that because on this village board that I'm on, there are people that think like I do politically and think like, and that don't think like I do politically, but there are no political parties. You run on, you know, Village One and Cornwall First. You run on these these crazy party names, but there's no Democrats and Republicans. We are, we are a divided country right now. And I've always thought that one of the main roles and the main, I think, the, 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 the main responsibilities for a leader is to take factions and to take the things that naturally divide us, whatever they are, whether it's race, creed, ethnicity, gender, whatever it is, political party, or in the case of New York SWAT, the blue section and the gold section that had historically 
Um, and I'd come from one side of the house, but then I left and went to HRT and came back. And that time away, well, first of all, it gave me the bona fides because I'd been on HRT. Right. Second, and it allowed me to grow up and mature too, because I was a young kid when I was in New York the first time, but it also allowed me to come back and have the, the gravitas to say the bullshit ends here. So if you can't work with you, and if this squad can't work with this squad and this team can't work with this team, you're off the team. I don't care how much you know me, how far we go back. The unit is more important than any of us. And I did a house cleaning. Now the house cleaning involved maybe five or 10 people out of a, out of a team of 45. Mm -hmm. But by removing those people that said, oh, Galliano's an asshole or we don't want to work with him. I then had a group of people that said, I'll buy in. I've, I've grown up in the ranks underneath this or this, but guess what? I'm going to buy into this. Errol came on shortly after I'd already done the, the whole reconfiguration and, and, and kind of, you know, changed the team construct around. I no longer wanted people to identify with I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm blue SWAT or I'm gold SWAT. You're New York SWAT. And here's how it's going to work. You're going to, there's going to be three teams and each of those teams is going to be headed by a team leader. And those team leaders are going to pick and they're going to have to pick guys, one from blue and one from gold. So every team is heterogeneous. There's no homogeneity to the, to the thing. So you're going to do this or you're going to leave. And so that was drastic. That was non-traditional. But I was in a good position. I was still young, but I had come from HRT and I still had New York roots people gave me a chance. And that's the important thing. And I think that that was something that was a seminal moment for me because I took over the team November 15th of 2002. I remember the day it looked like it was yesterday mm -hmm. when they posted me to it. I had a meeting up at Camp Smith in Peekskill, which was our firearms range for SWAT over in, uh, in, in Westchester County. I had all the team members come up that day. I read them the riot act and said, this is how it's going to be in this regard. Now, having said that, once you get past that, I am a leader that believes in surrounding himself with smart people because I'm not smart. I graduated the bottom of my West Point class. That is the <laughs> truth. I will surround myself with smart people and I'll take your counsel. I'll listen to you. I will consider all sides and then I will make the decision and own the decision. And that's how, that's how I, I led. And the last thing I think that was an important thing for me, and I learned many years before, I was a plebe at the United States Military Academy. And I, I don't think I was during Beast Barracks, which is the summer where they just totally destroy you, break you down, and then build you up in their image. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was a super plebe, but I definitely wasn't like, you know, the guy that couldn't, you know, get out of his own way. So I was, I was in here somewhere, but okay. I had a roommate who's one of those guys during Beast Barracks, young guy from, and I'll never forget from Indiana, who was as messed up as we would say in the business as a soup sandwich. So he took, <laughs> he took a lot of attention from the upperclassmen and they abused him. And this is, you know, when my father was at West Point in the 1950s, they could put their hands on you. When I was there in the mid eighties, they couldn't touch you, but they could scream at you and they could abuse you and haze you as long as they didn't touch you. Now it's okay. different, right? 
But in the 80s, they could do that. And they made this guy's life miserable. And, and I did everything I could to help him the night before, getting his stuff squared away, the whole nine yards. He wanted to be at West Point. And I knew that if he just could turn the corner and stop getting all the fire from the upperclassmen, he'd be okay. I remember him coming to bed one night, right? So we're in a room. There's two single bunks. It's lights out. It's 10 o'clock. The alarm's going to go off tomorrow morning at 4.30 to go begin training again. And he's sobbing, crying, right? 18-year-old kid crying himself to sleep because he'd been abused all day. I said, man, hang in there. We got this. Come on, tomorrow's a new day. Look, don't try to think about getting through plebe year. Just get through tomorrow. That's our goal. Just get through tomorrow. Okay. He says to me, I'll never, ever be the kind of guys that are doing this to me. If I make it through this, I'll never be that guy. Fast forward one year later. He makes it through plebe year by the skin of his teeth. He now becomes an upperclassman. And he becomes everything that he loathed. Everything that he cried about. Everything that he complained about. And I remember thinking to myself, and I'm an 18-year-old kid at the time, like, Wow, this is a great lesson because when you're being led and you see things that are wrong, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't scream at somebody. I wouldn't act like that. I wouldn't be a bully. But then when you make it through and you're now on this side of the fence, you become everything you profess to load. And your philosophy was, well, they did it to me. And I learned that. And, and what I learned was, you learn good and bad things from the leaders above you. And, and, and I think I mentioned it the last time, leaders that I've served under go across a football field, right? right. From the 10-yard line and in, right? The 10-yard line this way, superstars. The 10-yard line to the goal line this way, jerks. Everybody else is the mediocre folks 80 yards in between. They're in between the 10-yard lines, right? You're aspiring to be that 10% where somebody like Errol Dobler, who humbles me to hear that, but you go, I say to myself, man, I did it right. I made a right difference. And you know what? That's now something that he's going to incorporate into who he is as a leader. He's going to say, I didn't like any, everything Galliano did, but the way he did this, I respect it. And that's what I'm going to do. So we're all kind of a composite of the leaders we've served under, right? So be more like those 10-yard line and in on the superstars mm -hmm. and not like that 10-yard line and in on the other side of the football field of the really bad leaders. Unfortunately, most people don't understand that. And unfortunately, the vast majority of us, the vast majority of leaders in the world are between the 10-yard lines. They're not on either end. Right. So it's a good thing they're not on the bad end, but they're not on the good end. So Gotcha. That lesson was something I think that, uh, that, that shaped how the New York SWAT team was my first real leadership opportunity where I owned it. I was in charge of those 44 men. I was in charge of their safety, their health and welfare. And I felt like, yes, we're going to go into harm's way. Yes, it's, it's an accepted it's accepted that you may lose people along the way because it's a dangerous business, mm -hmm. but I will never lose somebody because I didn't train them well enough, prepare them well enough, or give them an operations plan that gave them a fighting chance to succeed. 
Okay. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. And, and I, I certainly want to get into what separates those great leaders at that, that end of the football field, you know, the top 10% mm-hmm. from everyone else. Um, but maybe a good place to kind of pick up on this is the leadership quote that you left me with the last time that you were on the show, you, you left us with a teaser, Jimmy. I, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to bring up what that quote was. And also you gave us a little background on the quote. You didn't just give us the quote. You said you gave us the background on it. So let, let's talk about it. Give us Give us that quote. So I've always felt that, you know, when, when I do speak to groups and organizations about leadership and and the, one of the biggest questions I would always get is, Jimmy, I need a quote. I need a motivational quote. What is the best leadership quote you've ever, ever heard? And for a while, I was like, man, I, you know, if you, if you Google leadership quotes, your search engine will start smoking because there's, <laughs> you know, 3.3 trillion different, you know, uh, you know uh, findings yeah. there. So I, I keep it simple. And, okay. and this is a world according to me. And I know I left you with that teaser and you're a good host because you do your homework and, 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 and you do the follow-up because the quote <laughs> that I left you with was by General Dwight David Eisenhower. Now he was part of West Point class 1915, which many consider, not me, but many consider, I agree with it, um, the greatest West Point class of all time because they call it the class that the stars fell on. Now, in that class, I think um, there were, let me see if I get these numbers straight. There were two five-star generals that came out of that class, two four-star generals, seven three-star generals, 24 two-star generals, and 24 one-star generals. Jesus. Yes, and I think the number is like 58 out of 167 or some crazy number like that. And literally, it breaks down to, in that class, three guys are standing next to each other. Look to your left and your right. One of you is going to make general officer. That's that doesn't happen. In my class, West Point class of 87, which I consider to be the second greatest West Point class of all time, <laughs> if I might humbly say so myself, I want to say that maybe maybe 3%, 4% of our class reached the rank of, of general officer. We have a couple of three-stars, and I think we just had our first four-star general. But that's the normal kind of spread. So that class, and you can argue that it's, you know, nature versus nurture. Was it, you know, the times? Because when they graduated in 1915, it was right before World War I, and they were senior officers when they got to World War II. Okay, I, I get all that. But that class was full of rock stars. And the greatest rock star in that class was our 34th president. And that was General Dwight David Eisenhower, who basically you know, led the allied forces on the D-Day invasion. And, you know, that battle, we just don't really, there's so many battles in our history that we go, the battle of Little Round Top at Gettysburg. My God, if Lee had been able to turn that flank, we might be eating grits right now and speaking with a twang. You know, it's like Mm. how things could have changed. If the allies hadn't have gotten a foothold in Normandy, Lawrence, I'm a military historian this would be a different world right now. So the consequence of that operation was it it just incalculable. 
That was a long windup to your simple question, which was, Jimmy, give me the greatest quote. <laughs> no, I love the, I wanted the buildup. <laughs> the greatest quote was from him. And I, I say all the time that I'm sorry, hands down, this is it. But General Eisenhower famously said, leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you need done for the mission because he or she wants to do it. Leadership is the art of getting someone else to do what you need done because he or she wants to do it. Okay. So here's, yeah. So, so this is what great leaders are made out of because, you know, getting people to do something because they want to do it. It's a, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's like one of these spiritual martial arts, like, you know, uh, you know, see without seeing, right. It's like, you want to get, because if you can get people to do, you know, what you want them to do, something that they want to do, right, because they want to do it, you know, it's almost like you're not leading at all, right? But yet you are. And it, it, to find that, to, you know, to find that, um, that zeitgeist, that, that, that ability within yourself to be able to do that without forcing it, without, you know, doing it naturally, is it, it take you know it takes years to develop that kind of skill, that kind of gravitas, that kind of emotional awareness, that kind of um, you know just that kind of uh, understanding of the ebb and flow of the personalities on your team. So I want to put this in context, okay? Because it ain't like um, you know for you that. We got to get the team to work a little bit harder to sell some more widgets. For for someone in your position, you've got to get people to go into harm's way, okay? And yeah, we get that the people signing up for the job know that. But I'm going to quote you from something you've written. So so you say uh, in an article that I read, every time law enforcement goes in to try to neutralize a terrorist suspect, there is a risk that they themselves may be deliberately targeted. But at the end of the day, when you join the police or a law enforcement agency, you sign on to accept a higher personal level of acceptable risk. And for those joining tactical or hostage rescue units, that that acceptable risk increases exponentially. So even if you assess, Jimmy, and select effectively to find people that are psychologically geared to consistently throw themselves in harm's way, like you were talking about before, the kind of people you're looking for, you know, it's not, you know, you know, the kind of people that they don't, they're not, it's not that they're not afraid. It's that they've mastered their fear. Yeah. Okay. So selecting for that, great. But as a leader, it must be, it must be crucial to keep that attitude that they have primed and the motivation of the team high enough that everyone continues to be motivated for game day. Because just because I know that, look, I know I'm going to put myself in harm's way and I'm up for the fight, you know, okay, great. Doesn't mean I want to do it every single time. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, you get extra points for using the word zeitgeist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you get I don't even points. think I, I don't even think that was the right word, but I was searching for something. <laughs> no, 
and and then to follow up with, uh, with 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 what you just said there, um, and to go back just a little bit, and then I'll come back to that. Um, it is the difference in leadership between demanding respect and commanding respect. So I have a pit bull, right? So mm -hmm. he's he's the one that makes the curtains behind me flutter back and forth because he walks through here like he doesn't believe that I'm in the middle of something right now. <laughs> but he's six and a half years old and he's an old man now and he kind of rules the roost here. Gotcha. But it is the same way when you deal with a pit bull puppy and this is my third one and we get them when they're rescued and they're young. But it's the difference between fear and respect, right? When they're puppies, they got to fear you. Not because you're going to smack them or whatever, but you have to have You've got to you've got to be that pack leader, right? You've got to give them that fear that they don't know that you're not going to go sideways and do something, even though you'd never do it. But from that, it moves into respect. And it's the same thing with dealing with human beings where I talk about demanding respect versus commanding respect. Demanding respect means I have lieutenant bars here. You're a private you have to salute me. And if I tell you to go clean out the latrine and burn the shit, you have to do that. Mm. That's, that's demanding, right? Okay. Commanding is when you have been in, in extremist situations with somebody or when your men realize, or your women, because obviously the, the military is, you know, when I was in the military, women weren't in the infantry. They didn't go to ranger school, but we are an integrated force now do they believe that you are willing to do everything and anything that you would have them do? Now, look, and I'll give you one little quick vignette on that. When I was in training, I was, I was a young lieutenant just out of ranger school. I was assigned to the 2nd of the 14th Infantry, 2nd uh, Brigade of the 10th Mountain Division, and I was a platoon leader for 3rd Platoon in Bravo Company 214 Infantry. We immediately get sent, and, and you made the point at the top of this, my deployments in the military in the late 80s were CONUS within the continent of the United States. Right. And we traveled to Fort Irwin, California to do an exercise out there at the National Training Center. And I'll never forget, i just gotten out of ranger school, just graduated from West Point, and I wanted to be that lieutenant that his men appreciated and revered and respected and would follow in battle. But I was misguided. And you say, how was I? Well, I had a crusty first sergeant by the name of Paul Eastwood. And I'll never forget, it was the first night we were out there. It was going to be an exercise that was six or seven days long. We were in the mountains of Fort Irwin, California. We were a light infantry force, so we didn't have Jeeps or Humvees or you know, APCs. So we were doing everything on foot, going over Hill and Dale. And we were meeting the Op 4, which back in those days, they were Russian forces, right? So we were fighting the fictional you know, opposing force. And I'll never forget, it was day one, day two, maybe, I think, and it was late. And we had an early morning hit to do it like four in the morning. And we had to put people up on guard duty, right? So, the, so my, my platoon sergeant says, all right, sir, I'm going to go ahead and make up the list for, uh, for security tonight. Go ahead and get some sleep. You got a long day tomorrow. I'm like, no, platoon sergeant, I know better. Put me on the list tonight. I want the men to see me doing what they do. He looked at me. Hey, sir, kid, I, I appreciate what you're doing, West Point and all, and I know you want to do the right thing. 
I don't think that's a good idea. No, no, platoon sergeant. I want to do this because I want the men to know that I'll do whatever they do. Hey, sir, they kind of got that figured out. But if you do that, you've got to lead the operation tomorrow. They're going to expect you to lead from the front. You need to get sleep tonight because you're going to have 40 men. You're going to have their lives in your hands. You know, obviously this is a training exercise. I, I didn't listen to him. So that night, my shift was from two to three o'clock, got up at three 30 after 20 minutes of trying to sleep or whatever, and was shot for the rest of the day. The lesson learned there. Well, the first lesson learned there is when you're a Lieutenant, you think, you know, everything and you're 22 years old, <laughs> you don't know shit. Listen to your platoon Sergeant. But the second thing was understanding the balance between, yes, I want to be one of the men and I want them to know that I will do anything just like I would ask them to do. Right. But my job and my role are different. Private first class Snuffy, his job is to be the point man on a patrol. His job is very limited. It's important. It's critical. The team requires him to be good at what he does and to do his job the right way. My job was to have my wits about me and to make decisions in battle. And I learned in that, in that short six-day exercise that trying to be that guy that was, I want the men to know that I'll do whatever they do, in that scenario and instance was not the right thing. Now, you always want to do whatever you're going to ask your men to do, but there are different roles in teams. Gotcha. As a SWAT team leader, my job is different. I can't, I was still a young guy when I took over the New York SWAT team. I'd just come back from HRT. I'd been a number one man, a number two man, a number three. I'd done all those different roles. I'd kicked in doors and been overseas and snatched bad guys. When I became a senior team leader in New York, I could no longer be that action guy. And that was another hard thing to realize was, hey, I'm not that guy anymore. I have to put these guys in the best position to succeed. And they're relying on this from me and not the ability to jump over tall buildings in a single bound. So I think judgment and discernment are two critical leader traits that you don't learn when you're young. You learn them when you get a little bit older. Right. You know, I think that's interesting um, because there's a couple of ways you could earn the respect of your or command the, the respect of your, your team. Firstly, you could be willing to roll up your sleeves and do everything that you're asking them to do. And you'll do it from time to time. Right. The other way is that obviously you can't do that all the time because it's not your role. So I guess the, and the other way is that they see that your decisions, whether or not they agree with them, actually end up succeeding. And then, wait a second, Jimmy knows what he's talking about. I might not agree with him, but you know what? He has a history of making decisions, smart decisions that lead to success. So, you know, I, that makes sense. What you've just said there makes sense to me because a lot of leaders, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't know if it's an insecurity thing or not, feel that, you know, I, I've got to be at the tip of the spear as well. I've got to be there to the point where, you know, I'm even putting myself at risk. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's go back to like 
Let's go back to the 19th century or the 18th century in U.S. military history. And back in those days, the officers had to be at the front leading the charge, right? You know, right. G- General Lewis Armistead on Pickett's Charge for the Confederates was at the very forefront and ended up getting, you know, killed right up there at the, at the, at the stone wall. But he had to lead because, you know, he put his hat on top of his saber and, you know, follow me. There are times for that. And there are times where you have to be in that kind of position. Leaders have to be able to accept the same risk as the men they're leading or the people that they're leading. But by the same token, what screws things up more if you lose a private or you lose somebody that is a decision maker that is keeping you as safe as possible? I And look, every loss of life, whether it's in combat or whether it's in law enforcement, every loss of life is important. And in law enforcement, it's even, you know, the, and I, and I hate to use this term because it sounds laissez-faire and I don't mean it that way when you say, what are the acceptable losses? You know, it, hey, you've got a mission in, in the military and you're like, hey, we're probably going to take 20% casualties. But in order to do this, we've got to do that. We've got to accept that. Law enforcement is a little different because you're like, wait a minute, 20% casualties. These are civilians. But you still know that you're going into harm's way. Yes, leaders need to be leading from the front and not just saying that in, 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 in an abstraction, in, you know, in the kind of a figurative sense, but at the same time, too, why in combat do, they, do the snipers always look for the people with the shiny epaulets? You want to take out the command and control, the people that are making, that are making the decisions. And so, it, it, Lawrence, it, it's a fine line. And I think, again, it's my mother used to always say, and she stole it from somebody, youth is wasted on the young because, you know, when you're young, you just don't have that, that wisdom and you don't have that ability to say, one of the hardest things I had as a SWAT team leader in New York was my higher command would say, Jimmy, if you think you can do it, if you can take it safely, do it. And I'm looking there and I'm doing the cost benefit analysis and I'm doing the X's and O's and I'm like, shoot, I know we can get in and get a foothold and we might be able to get here, but I may take some fire here. And that means one of my guys is in harm's way and you're doing that. And one of the hardest things is you're leading alpha males and alpha females. You're leading people that want to be that tip of the spear. And when you rein them back, even though inside I'm the guy going, if I'm number one, I want to go and I don't want to listen to any leader telling me not to, but as a leader, you have to look at that and you have to be responsible and you have to make decisions in their best interest when those young hotshots, Lawrence, aren't capable of making those decisions because they just want to do the right thing. They just want to get to the bad guy. They just want to rescue the hostage. They just want to take that hill in Kandahar. You got to be the one to say, nope, we're not going to do it this way or we're not going to do it today or we're going to come up with a better plan. That might even, you know what? That's interesting. That might be the that might be the harder thing. You know, you yeah. talk about get, you know, getting people to do something, you know, that they want it, you know, the, you know, how does the quote go? Give me the quote again. Leadership is the art of get, getting someone else to do something you need done for the mission because they want to do it. What might be harder is when you have a bunch of pit bulls yeah. that that want to go in. In fact, all they ever want to do is go in. Probably the harder thing is to pull them back and to, and to get them to accept the fact that 
you know, maybe now isn't the right time to take the hill as a leader. So why is leadership more difficult than being the tip of the spear? Because when I was the tip of the spear, I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And you know what? I never expected to live past 50. I never expected to live past 30. And I figured I'm going to go down to blaze of glory, but I'm going to do righteous and I'm going to serve my country and I'm going to get the bad guys. I'm going to save the innocents. As a leader, my calculus was always this. I'm not thinking about it from the perspective of the number one guy because I was that kid one day. I'm thinking about it from the perspective of his wife, his mother, his children. That was the calculus. How do I now go? Because it's my responsibility as a leader. You know, it's, you know, we, we as officers in the military or as SWAT team leaders or police chiefs in, in law enforcement, our job is to go to the widow and explain, I sent your loved one into harm's way. I did the best I could for them. And he or she died serving their country valiantly. But that's a tough thing to do if I did something reckless or I wasn't 100% certain that I gave my folks not 100% chance of victory, but the best chance to succeed. Because there are some missions that, you know, where you're going to be asked to do something where you're like, wow, it's the military. That's a suicide mission or hold this post at all costs. And in law enforcement, go get that bad guy. Go shut it down. Go save that hostage. And you know you're going to take casualties in it. Are you okay with the plan that you put forward? And are you okay with meeting a parent the next day or a spouse, a surviving spouse, and saying, I gave him the best chance to succeed. And your, your son or daughter gave their life in the service of this country. And this nation owes them a debt of gratitude. But I don't feel like I could have left anything out there. I could have done anything more to make them safe or to give them the best chance to succeed. And that's it. That's why you've got to be a student of the business. And that's why I eat, breathe, and sleep this stuff because I wanted to know what SWAT tactics were in the 70s and how they dealt with things out in, 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 in Ruby Ridge or at Wounded Knee. I read all that stuff. I studied it the same way I did in the military because I didn't want, the worst thing you can do is make mistakes that have already happened before and repeat them. So I wanted to make sure that I, I gave myself the best chance to give my folks a fighting chance. So is this, is this where, you know, your, your, a quote that I've heard you say, a, a, a saying that I've read um, in, in, again, it may have been an interview or an article you wrote, but you said mission first soldiers always. Right. Is that what is that what you were just describing there? Yeah. So, first of all, I, I like to take credit for a lot of things, um, but, you know, I, uh, I can't take credit for that quote. I know that quote's been around for a long time. I don't know who to attribute it to, mm-hmm. but um, essentially that is a conundrum. And and to explain to, to your viewers the type of conundrum, I was a brand new FBI agent you know, straight out of the military, sent to Queens. I'd grown up in Atlanta, Georgia. So I was lost and I get sent to Queens, New York. And I was on the Gambino squad working the John Gotti case. And my boss calls me in one day and he says, kid, I need you to go out and follow this mobster today. We know he gets up around the crack of noon and we know he goes and he does this and he picks up money here and he drops this off here and he goes here. 
you're going to go set up on his neighborhood and then you're going to follow him. He's going to go through the Bronx, Queens, and into Manhattan today and then back to his home. You're going to follow him. But kid, here's the caveat. Don't lose him. I got to get you to get pictures of this guy making this handoff, but don't get burned. Now, getting burned in surveillance terms means the guy that you're following goes, I got a tail. So it was that fine line between, wait a minute, bumper lock him or don't get made. So that's what we call a conundrum. And that's the same kind of conundrum that mission first soldiers always is. And what does that mean? Well, the mission, accomplishing the mission may include casualties. It's just a, it's a part of the business. So whether it's the business of the military or it's the business of law enforcement, we go into harm's way. We know that our job as in the military, our job is to go take that hill or capture that high value target or defeat that battalion. That's your job. And in law enforcement, your job is going to be to be that sheepdog, that thin blue line, to, to be that thin blue line between the rabble and the bad people and, and, and innocent people. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you're going to accomplish the mission, but you're going to take care of your people. But what if taking care of your people means putting them in harm's way? Well, that's part of the business. So it is a conundrum. Accomplish the mission, always take care of your people. But taking care of your people doesn't mean being a patsy, right? Doesn't mean that you're going to let them walk all over you because soldiers and cops, they sense weakness in leaders like you wouldn't believe. They're like piranhas. So if you're weak, they will chew you up and spit you out. (laughs) You cannot do that. So you've got to look out after them. You've got to take care of them. But when the mission is what the mission is, you got to, again, I go back to the same thing I just said in the last segment. You've got to give them the best chance to succeed, but accomplish the mission. There is no, there's no coming back. Go take that hill, literally or metaphorically, right? But always take care of your people. And you can do both. Taking care of your people does not mean that if you're in a dangerous business, you can protect them from any harm. It's not realistic, Lawrence, because... It doesn't happen that way. This is, it's not a Hollywood movie. This is reality. But you can do that as long as you give them the best chance to succeed. That means being technically, tactically proficient. And that means knowing each and every one of your soldiers or your cops. And what does that mean? That means knowing their strengths and weaknesses. Every one of us, me included, you included. We got good traits. And we've got weaknesses, right? So as a leader, your job is to identify what the strong suits are for each of your people and put them in the best position to succeed. Conversely, your job is to recognize the weaknesses in every member of your team and not put them in a position to fail. Does that make sense? It it makes sense. Once again, we got, you know, we got ourselves, you know, threading the needle, right? So much of this. So much of this is threading the needle, being a great, whether it's being a great leader um, or whether it's, you know, again, in extremist scenarios, like you describe, when lives are on the line, it's so different. It's so different than in business. And it's, you know, it's kind of why I always go back to speaking with tier one operators, 
guys that have done what you've done, HRT, SWAT, because the lessons that you learn from having done things on the razor's edge of life and death make, make business where you know life isn't on the line, but there are goals to achieve. I mean, you it's like a hot knife going through butter when you take the skills you have and, and you can train someone in business. Hey, here's how we need to look at leadership. Um, because if you can succeed in life and death and thread that needle, man, all day long, that's why. And, you know, I was, I was, I was interviewing a, a guy uh, who just wrote this, uh, this amazing book, The Talent War, uh, Mike Sorelli, uh, another Navy SEAL. And, you know, he talks, you know, the books about how, you know, how, how special operations have mastered the art of winning the talent war because the best of the best somehow the cream of the crop ends up in those tier one units. But how do you get tier? How do you get those tier one people into those units and how do you assess them? How do you select them? But you know, once you're, once you're, once you're a tier one unit, like HRT, everyone wants in, everyone wants in, right? No. <laughs> and you got a good chance of getting, you know, putting your life on the line yet people are beating down the door to come in. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be learned from what it is you've done. What a lot of special operators, tier one operators have done that can translate to business like your three C's. Let's get into the three C's of leadership, right? This is a, <laughs> this is a, a Jimmy Galliano special. What are, uh, so I've read your article, The Three C's of Leadership. Can you talk to our audience about what the three C's are and kind of describe why each one is so important? You do your homework, don't you? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. You're like, Jimmy, we're just going to get together. We have a chat on leadership. I'm like, holy cow, this guy has done his homework. Yes, I, um, you know, I, uh, I, I wrote an article for, um, for CEO Magazine. And, and kind of to your point, Lawrence, um, you know, people say all the time, like, well, Jimmy, you know, what's the connection between, you know, what the Navy SEALs do or what FBI HRT does or, or what, you know, special operators do? How do you translate that into, you know, the boardroom? Because, look, right. we're bean counters. You know, we're not charging up a hill. And I said this. I said, first of all, and I don't blow smoke up anybody's ass. You know, I call it as I see it. But business is the economic driver in this country, in this economy, it is an economic driver. What you do, right? You say, well, you know, I, my, my job is to, is just to, is to create profits. Sure. But if you create profits, you feed yourself and your family and you feed the people who work for you themselves and their families. And right. if you do really well, you expand and you feed more people's families and then you expand and you feed more people's families. So don't sell short what you do. I get it. You're not drawing your sword and, you know, going forward and lopping off heads. And that's okay. Not everybody <laughs> does that. But the bottom line is don't sell yourself short 
on what you do and 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 what you add to the mix. And so, you know, you talk about the the, the C's, and 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 I was always, I was always caught up in 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 C's because I looked at it and I said, man, there's like so many of these words, you know, character and charisma, competence, and and really the number one C that, you know, the reason why I wrote that article was about communication, right? Because we're, we're in a tough stage right here. And you're in the podcast business. So you do this more than I do before COVID. I would have told you, Nope, I ain't doing this. Where are you? I'll come sit in studio with you. We'll sit across from each other because I use my hands. I like to read you. I want you to read me. Right. That's a, let's get an audience. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's really do this because I am a people person and doing this through a flat two-dimensional media, medium. You're seeing me in a little you know, thumbnail. I'm seeing you in a little thumbnail. It's not our usual means to communicate. And so communication was something that I really, 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 started to look at shortly after I got in the army, because I found out that, you know, there's ways you can tell somebody to go to hell and they'll hate you. And there's ways you can tell somebody to go to hell and they'll say, all right, sir, I'll pack a lunch and I'll be back. What are we going to do tomorrow? (laughs) But you said the same thing. You said the same thing. And so communication became a thing where I was like, wow, the way that I frame something, whether it's a conversation with my wife and you know how wives can be where they read into everything. And well, what did you mean by the, I don't know. It's a determinant. The T H E. What do you mean? What did I mean? But I recognize that words matter and that, and that the way that you communicate matters. And, and I learned that 55% of what you and I are doing right now, even though you don't realize it, is nothing to do with what we're talking about, is nothing to do about how we raise our voices or lower our voices and inflection. It's body language. You're nodding your head and I said, he heard me and he concurred, right? So I raise my hand, I do this. You're like, wow, he's really passionate about that. That's 55% of human communication. 38% is tone, inflection, how you leave a word off or a sentence and 7% are the stupid words that I use to make myself seem much smarter than I really am. Think about that. 55, 38, seven, 55 is physical. 38 mm. is tonal. Right. 7% are the actual words. And so when I started thinking about that and I'm like, wow, that's really neat because you know, in law enforcement, I mean, you know, polygraph examinations were huge to us. Not necessarily that we were going to use them in court because they're, they're not admissible in a court of law. Right. But the threat of using them and what they would do to people, whether they'd agree to take one or not take one, you know, it's, I, I, I always say, it goes back to that old Seinfeld thing. You, you remember when in the one Seinfeld episode where, you know, George Costanza comes in and he looks at Jerry and he goes, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> and that was so in indicia of, of the guys that I would deal with, whether they were mobsters or gangbangers or white collar criminals, it was trying to sort out the sociopath and the psychopath from normal people. Cause the vast majority of us 
have a conscience, right? We understand right from wrong. And that's why if I put you on the box right now and I asked you questions that you didn't want to answer truthfully, you'd start sweating profusely. Your right. fingers would get clammy. Your heart would start pounding. All these physiological changes would happen because you're a normal human being and you have a conscience. But some people don't. But that some people is a small, infinitesimal percentage of people. And so what I try to deal with is people like me and you, where I go, I recognize the value and I recognize how important communication is. Because like I, the example I used about go to hell, I can tell that to you in, in, in two different ways. And like I said, one way, you hate me. You never want to talk to me. You think I'm the biggest a-hole in the world. The other way, you're like, I got you, Jimmy. I'm on my way, and I'll be back tomorrow, and let's figure this thing back out. It's how you do it. And I realize what a powerful tool. That's not an inextremist tool. That's not a tool that's just part and parcel of special ops. That's not part and parcel of the military. That's not part and parcel of law enforcement. That's human communication. And I realize that out of all the C's, that's the most important, how you communicate. And I've got my differences with James Comey, and I know that your podcast is not political. So I'll leave it like this because I served under four of the only eight FBI directors in the Bureau's 112 year history, right? Right. Because, because Jared Hoover served for 48 years. So no one's gonna ever you know, have, that, have that run again. But the last one I served under was James Comey. And before James Comey was FBI director, he was the deputy attorney general during the Bush 43 administration. And right. at that time, Chris Christie, who we all know now is a you know, former Republican presidential candidate and the former governor of New Jersey. But at the time, this is back in probably 2003, at the time, Chris Christie was the uh, U.S. attorney for the state of New Jersey. Okay. So he had traveled down to D.C. and he was at Maine Justice, the Department of Justice, the main building down there right near the FBI, the, the FBI headquarters and right down from the White House, Maine Justice. He's down there and it's a Friday afternoon and he sees Jim Comey, who's the number two at the Department of Justice at the time, the, the deputy attorney general. He sees Comey come walking out real quick. He's got a, a briefcase in his hand. He's got his, you know, his uh, London fog jacket on his arm because it's pouring rain outside five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Chris Christie sees him. Says, hey, Jim, where are you going? It's Friday afternoon in DC. Traffic is crazy. It's pouring rain right now. Where are you going? You're going to be stuck in traffic. And he said, Chris, I'm flying up to New York. He goes, New York? I know you got family in Connecticut, but why are you going to New York on a Friday afternoon? And Jim Comey says, I'm going to have a sit down with the New York Times editorial board. Chris Christie looks around and goes, are you out of your mind? The New York Times editorial board? You realized they hate the administration. They hate the Department of Justice. They've been exceedingly you know, uh, just their their editorial board is like it's a it's a pit of vipers. It's a it's a it's a den of of wolves. Why mm. would you go there personally and sit down with them? And Jim Comey says, "Well, they sent me some questions they want me to ask answer." And and 
Chris Christie goes, so send them an email. Answer the questions. Be done with it and go home to your family. Right. Jim Comey says, nope. I'm going to fly up there and I'm going to sit down with them tomorrow on a Saturday morning. I'm going to go over the questions that they want to ask. You know why, Chris? Because it's impossible to hate up close. Sorry, say that again. He said, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to sit down with the New York Times editorial board. I'm going to listen to their questions. I'm going to answer them personally. And you know why I'm going to do it face to face? Because it's impossible to hate up close. And I came away with that. And again, I say this as a guy who's been a harsh critic. I say that because, wow, think about that. Where does most of the hate and most of the dissent and most of the acrimony, where does it exist? It exists online and it exists in the flat two-dimensional medium here. And why did I give that long windup? Because it goes back to communication. When you're a boss and you say, all right, you know what? Um, I run a big company. I'm running GE and I've got, I've got an office in new Canaan, Connecticut, and I've got an office in new Delhi, India. I can't get everywhere, but I've got to do some layoffs. So I'm sending my pink slips out. Uh, Mrs. McGillicuddy, just go ahead and email them out. Well, no, there are things that need to be done face to face or in the COVID world that we're dealing with right now, mm-hmm. there are things that need to be done like we're doing right now. They right. need to be done on, if it's classified, secure video teleconference, but it needs to be done like this. And this is what communication is about because if you read something, if you look at a text or an email or you read it in the Wall Street Times or the New York Times, it's flat, two-dimensional. It is easy to misinterpret and it is easy to hate the other guy. But when you deal this way, man, doesn't matter what our religions are, our sexual persuasions, our ethnicities, our genders, doesn't matter any of that stuff. We all cut and bleed the same. We got to deal with each other as humans. So that's why of the three C's, communication is the most important. And I know I spent all the time talking about that because character and competence are equally important. If you don't, you know, if, if you're not, if your word isn't bond, if what you say isn't what you're about, um, you know, I remember one of my first, first sergeants in the army telling me hey sir you can bullshit me you'll never be able to bullshit that 17 year old private and he was right because you know people with fancy degrees like us we can bullshit each other but when you're dealing with a 17 year old kid they cut right through it sir tell me what i need to know don't bullshit me they cut right through it and that was a huge lesson for me so those are the three C's. The other two are equally important. Right. Communication is the most important. You know, what you said there, a lot of powerful stuff, um, especially your anecdote about Jim Comey, who, you know, again, I've read, I've read what you've written. I've read your harsh criticisms. So for you to say that is something. But – 
when you went into talking about how, you know, that relates to so much of the hatred is fomented these days from being behind the computer screen, typing away on uh, social media where no one has to see each other and you're trolling and you're, you know, and you're just, you know, spewing out all the hate. You said when leadership failures occur, root cause analysis can often lead directly back to a lack of communication or a misunderstanding of the commander's intent. <laughs> and so when the, you know, so when you're behind the, you know, the keyboard and you're sending out your pink slips or you're the leader who's just firing off email after email, giving directions to people that way. What's the intent? Because emails, a lot of times they don't convey what, what the, you know, what the actual meaning of the, the tone that you would use or the body language, you know, it's like you said, you could say the same thing two different ways, go to hell, right? Can have two different meanings the way it's said. So, you know, this thing about intent and how things you, you know, what you said was when, when leadership failures occur, the root cause a lot of the times is that there was a misunderstanding. Commander's intent was not understood. 100% right. And let me just follow up on one thing uh, in regards to the James Comey thing. Um, and you're right. And I know you're being polite because you're going, you've been kind of harshly critical. And so it was, it was different to hear you say that because Lawrence, we're all complex human beings. None right. of us are perfect. I have my differences with former director Comey about some of the things he's done, but I've always maintained, I don't think he's the devil incarnate. I think he's a decent <laughs> human being who, who made some mistakes and there but for the grace of God go I. And you know, James Comey did have to deal with the 500 year flood with everything that happened in 2016. So I've been harshly critical, but I also look at things and say, we're all redeemable, good human beings at heart and that was something that I learned from James Comey. And I use that in all my leadership talks that people raise their hand in the back from IBM and they'll go, well, didn't you write this about James Comey? I'm like, yeah, I did. But guess what? He also is the guy in that vignette that I also just told you about. And I respect that. So good people can do bad things or good people can make poor decisions. Trust me, I've made a few in my life. So that's, that, that's the first thing. Then the second thing is, going back to what you just said in regards to, to, to the communication piece and just feeling that it is such an invaluable tool. And it's not just in the in extremist situations, but it is in everyday life. We are in a place right now. I mean, we started this off where you mentioned, hey, the climate right now. Look, the country is riven. It is riven in half, right? Right. So it's, it's 50-50. And one side, you know, thinks the other's evil. The other side thinks the other's evil. And you got all that going on. The vast majority of us, if we got in a room together and talked to each other and whatever, we get past all that because the, that's the communication piece in, in, in this whole thing. I just think that, that, that going forward as leaders, you know, and it's one of the things that I really, and again, I, I don't, I don't want to harp on my 
political career because my my political career is you know a elected village trustee in a village of three thousand people so <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm not going right. to get crazy i didn't get 71 million votes so you know i'm not going to get crazy but one of the big things and i'm going to look up here because it's you know it's, as as one of the things when i we had a, a recent board meeting and i talked about things that are important to me leadership vision and collaboration and you know, we're talking about leadership tonight and, and how I go get there and, and, and mm -hmm. how I view it, because everybody has a different way to skin the cat. But the last part of that is collaboration. And you can't get there without collaboration today. If you think you can do it alone, um, you may be the smartest guy in the room. It doesn't matter if you can't get people to say he or she is on point and I'm going to follow that person doesn't matter how smart you are. doesn't matter how big your muscles are. doesn't matter how much money you have. If you can't engender collaboration where people say, I'm going to work with that person, or I'm going to, I'm going to get involved in that cause, or I'm going to follow that person. All the, all the, you know, soliloquies that are, you know, the, that are rife with mellifluous stylings and dulcet tones. And none of that matters because if you can't get people to buy in and if you can't get people to buy in under the notion that it is a collaborative effort. Remember, I used to always say to my SWAT guys, you know, if as leaders, you know, if we succeed, you did it. If we fail, I got to figure out what I did wrong and fix it. And when you go into it and you just don't do that as platitudes and bromides, you don't just, hey, I think I'm supposed to say this because I'm a leader. And in the book that I read, it says leaders do this. But if you really believe that, that if we succeed, it's the team. If we fail, I got to go back to the drawing board because I'm the guy or the gal who's putting this whole thing together. If you, if you live your life that way as a leader, you'll succeed. Wow, I think that's a great note to kind of wind this down because, um, you know, that kind of that that kind of just wraps this whole thing up, brings it full circle, and it's another freaking C collaboration. You love the C's, Jimmy. What's going on? You see, you, you know, one last question before I let you go, and and thanks so much for you know, spending the time with us. Um, you've got, I know, cause you've told me thousands of books. Oh, look <laughs> at that. Is, this is, he, he wanted to make a starring role. Lauren, so he just popped in. Well, you know, I love pit bulls. Um, I I've had, I had a, a, an old family red, no, red nose pit bull. Yes. Yeah. That, that I raised from a pup. Um, I've had a, uh, uh, English Staffordshire Terry, which is like the British version. Yep. 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 And now I'm in the market to rescue, um, you know, a pit. So I hope, I, I hope you do. And there's plenty of places online and I'm going to make, I'm going to make a, a shameless shill right here real quick before your last question, which is going to be to adopt. Don't shop to your listeners and viewers that if you do get an opportunity Go rescue a dog. Yes. No matter what breed you want, if you're patient, that's the that's the key thing. You have to be patient. But there's a rescue organization that can find you the dog you want. And the pit bulls are the most misunderstood breed. 
Um, it's I'd never own another another breed. They're they're the absolute best, and I hope you get another one because uh, I, oh, I've I, never owned a dog that was more loving and more loyal. They truly, truly are. So absolutely, completely misunderstood. You know, a lot of people they're the you know, and I you know I read a ton of you know I read a ton of books on pit bulls, and you know there's there's a famous guy Richard Stratton who wrote you know some books on breeding pit bulls and their history. Yeah. Um, but what they ended up doing, you know, a lot of people think, you know, the, the fighting aspect of what they used to do with pit bulls when, when it was, you know, legal um, many years ago um, by breeding them to, to, to fight, what they ended up doing is yes, they ended up breeding these incredibly powerful dogs that are very, you know, obviously misused in the wrong way, you know, can, can be very, very uh, dangerous. But at the same time, by, in, by breeding them to fight, they would have to, the, the owners would have to get in the pit with these dogs and break them apart because they didn't fight to the death. Yeah. They didn't fight to the death, right? And so they would actually have rounds and they would have to separate the dogs. If they ended up breeding a dog that bit them, when they were trying to separate the dogs, the dog would take their arm off. So they never bred what they called man biters. And they ended up instilling in this breed the type of dog that adores human beings, loves, loves kids, loves people, wants to be around them, just turns to mush in front of people. Obviously, with other dogs, you know, potentially they're not so great. Well, with humans, they're amazing animals and they're so misunderstood. The most disgusting thing in the world is when you take those dogs and you abuse them and you turn them against people and you fight them, which obviously is a brutal thing that, sh that is uh, completely horrible that you shouldn't do. Uh, but an, a, a good unintended consequence of their roots was that they created the most loving dog to mankind that was ever created. But people don't understand that. So I have a soft spot for pit bulls as well. I'm passionate about them. And I'm rescuing another one for sure. Good. Well, you know, it's one of those things, too, where, you know, it's like we humans, you know, we do such awful things. You know, we're the ones that created the breed. And then once we created the breed, we created them to fight. And then once we create the breed, we go, oh, no, we don't want them around anymore. Now we got to destroy them. And and I always say all the time to, to people that ask me about it, um, are guns bad? No. In the right hands of a responsible owner, guns are a tool. And I think that I believe in the Second Amendment. And I believe that in the right hands, they are a part of our life and our culture. Are pit bulls bad? No. In the wrong hands, somebody that shouldn't own them? Absolutely. In the right hands, I've got a 10-year-old. I trust the dog around her. It's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a pushover. My children grew up yeah. with, my, with my pit bull, bouncing on the dog's head, poking his eyes, torturing him, and the, the dog just takes it. <laughs> I, right, love what's your, what's your, I know you got to go. So what is your last question? I took you down a rabbit hole. You no. took me down a pit bull rabbit hole. I took you down a pit bull hole. But uh, what's your last question? Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, okay. My last question is this. I know you have a massive library of yes. books. Yes. Thousands, which you keep threatening to give away. Yes. 
but you haven't given them away yet. So not one. What I want, <laughs> what I want to know is this. Recommend some some good lead. What what would be your recommendation when it comes to leadership books? Now here's the difference. You're a leader. You're a leader, right? And so a lot of people who aren't leaders recommend leadership books, but I'd love to hear from someone uh, who has a library and who definitely studies. So now, now, you're, now you're, your viewers are going to think that you teed me up here and that- uh, I definitely did not. You did not, but uh, the, the, the timing is very fortuitous. So um, I just recently got asked to write a chapter- in really what I believe is one of the seminal leadership books um, about what we have talked about tonight um, for a friend of mine who is the editor. It's a guy by the name of Dr. Patrick Sweeney, West Point class of 82. I was 87, so we didn't cross paths, but he's retired from the military, retired as a full colonel. And I'm going to show you the first edition of this book, which was published in 2011. It has been reprinted a gazillion times. You can find it on Amazon. I don't get a nickel from it, so I'm, I'm not shilling that way. Okay. Um, you can find it on Amazon, and it is done amazing. They're doing another edition. I am going to write a chapter in it, and the name of the book is Leadership in Dangerous Situations. Wow. And... It is a handbook for the armed forces, emergency services, and first responders. And Lawrence, for your listeners, this is the Bible. And again, I'm not in this book. I'll be in the second edition, so I don't get a nickel from this. I'm just saying I ordered this book. I'd seen it before, and when I was asked to write a chapter in the next book that's probably going to be out next summer, when I was okay. asked for a chapter, I said, absolutely. And I went back and pulled this up. But when you say, what would be a great book to read? If you're a junior officer, a young cop, a young firefighter, a young emergency service worker, and you want to know about in extremist leadership and about how to lead from, how to lead from every perspective, from the strategic, from the tactical, this is the book. Amazing. Amazing. I, it's so, it, <laughs> I so didn't tee this up for you. You did not. But, serendipity. Yes. But that, that is the book. And again, for folks that want to know leadership in dangerous situations, a handbook for the armed forces, emergency services, and first responders, you will not regret it. I literally, I read it years ago. I went out and bought another copy because I had to start writing my chapter for the next edition. And I was blown away by how much I thought I knew that I didn't know. Wow. You know, um, that's phenomenal. What I love about your recommendation is I've never heard of this book. <laughs> it's so that's fantastic. Um, thanks so much for, uh, for giving that, uh, that tip to us. Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely buying that book. Um, I'm, I guess I'll get the one without, cause I, now I've got to get it. So I'm going to get it. Uh, But that's phenomenal. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been great having you on the show once again, giving us some insight into the the heart of what it is that you personally have not only experienced and been involved with, but that you 
coach and train others on, not in, as you say, platitudes and bromides, you know, you, you speak from the heart. You've, you've been at the coal face. You've been on the razor's edge and you tell it like it is. And it's so refreshing to hear lead down to earth, real leadership lessons that we can all apply. Um, I, I'm, I absolutely love the communication uh, advice and how important that is. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Jimmy, great, great having you. Appreciate you having me back. And uh, what a great conversation and what a great topic. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours and I appreciate you having me back because when you told me, I think we could do a whole episode on that. And I'm like, yeah, we could probably barely scratch the surface. So thanks for having me. You asked all the right questions and, and I hope your listeners or your viewers take something away from this. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, where can our viewers find you again? So you can find me on Twitter at uh, James A. Galliano, G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O. Or you can find me at my website, which is jamesagalliano.com. So, um, you know, and and I write op-eds. You'll see me there. You'll see me on CNN. But uh, you'll definitely see me here on uh, the Alpha Human podcast. So thanks for having me, brother. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. Take care. (laughs) 